Hello friends, welcome to another Sunday edition of Different Church. My name is Hannah. I am the pastor of Different Church. I'm thrilled that you are here to talk about faith with us again. And if this is your first time watching, welcome. So happy that you are here. I do have a very exciting announcement. And that is we will be starting in-person services again. And the date is official. It is Sunday, July 12th. That is the week after the 4th of July. Um, and we will be starting in-person services then. We will have some more instructions related to practices that we are doing, extra safety precautions, etc. That will be communicated to you as the date gets closer. But mark your calendars. <laughs> I'm very, very excited to see all of you in person again. And of course, we will have some kind of online option as well for anyone who doesn't feel comfortable at that time meeting in person or for anyone who's not feeling well. So, so excited. I also want to take a moment before we jump into the message to remember um, George Floyd, who is the victim of police brutality and murder. Um, we had a moment to remember him at the end of our last Sunday sermon, and I think that it's appropriate and necessary to continue that today. I also want to say, make it very clear where I stand personally, where different church stands in relation to all of this. Um, we believe, and I believe strongly, very strongly, that Black Lives Matter and that that was completely horrible and wrong and should not be allowed in any fashion and that there needs to be systemic change from in many areas of society related to this but it all starts with us so what i'm going to recommend is that if you are a white person before you start talking about race before you start voicing your opinions about these things I'm going to recommend that you read this book and I'm just going to hold it up for a little while while I talk so that you can write down the title. It is called So You Want to Talk About Race. Um, it is a fabulous book by a wonderful black author and I highly, highly recommend it. It was very instrumental in my own journey to unpacking the things that I've grown up with and things that I had never questioned in my life. And what I will say is as a people, Nobody likes to think of themselves as racist, right? Especially if you're white, but we have all benefited in some way from systems that have destroyed countless lives of black people. And we have a responsibility as people and as followers of Jesus Christ to do the work, to examine our own biases, to change systems and fight against this racism and this oppression. It is not enough to be non-racist yourself. It, it, we have to be anti-racist. We have to be actively fighting this fight um, on behalf of our brothers and sisters and who have been the victims for so long. Now, I'm going to give you just a quote by Martin Luther King. It's not a, it's one of his, I suppose, lesser quoted quotes, but it's still just as powerful. And it simply says, the person who passively accepts evil is as much involved with it as the person who helps perpetrate it. The person who accepts evil without protesting against it is really cooperating with it. And that is not what we want to be as a church. That is not who I want to be as a person. And I know from being around and with all of you so many times that that is not who you want to be either. So I just know that we all stand together. And when I say that Black Lives Matter and that different church is committed to not just being non-racist, but to being anti-racist and to making our, our faith space, safe space for all people, no matter your race, gender, gender identity, sexuality, ethnicity, sexual orientation, sexual identity, 
age, ableness, anything like that. We want to make this a safe space for all people and we do give priority to protecting people who have not been protected in their lives. So I hope that you will read this book. Highly, highly recommend. Again, we may do some kind of book study with it in the fall when we are allowed <laughs> to gather together again in after July. So I just wanted to make that very clear and say that this is completely unacceptable and it has been unacceptable for a long time and it is our job to make a difference. So with that being said, we are going to jump into today's message, which <laughs> we're gathering, even though we're still separated, where I'm recording on an iPhone <laughs> and maybe you're watching on an iPhone, on your TV, on your iPad, who knows? We're still very separated, but we're still gathering together. And in our gathering, we are going to go back all the way to the beginning, perhaps a beginning, the start of our world, the start of our Bible, the start of our understanding of faith and creation and life. And all of this is at the beginning of our sacred text in only two verses. So these two verses, which is, of course, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, are what we are going to dip our toes in today. I'm going to read the two verses in the New Living Translation, and perhaps if you know these verses in a different translation, I just invite you to speak that translation, what you know in your heart, along with me as I read. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the face of the waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, these two verses, so well-known, <laughs> so well-loved, so often memorized, that even those who are no longer part of faith communities know these words in their bones, they can't forget them. Even those who have forgotten Christianity and left their faith community for any reason, these verses are still in their mind somewhere. And so we take for granted that we understand their meaning and that we have nothing more to learn from them. Like generally I only hear Genesis 1-1 used as like a proof text in the creation versus evolution debate. We're so sure, like we're so sure that we just understand the meaning of these two verses. So we rarely stop to ponder them, to sit, to reflect on these words, which are some of the most powerful in all of scripture. So actually today we are gonna take a pause and reflect and question and think with intention, which is always what we wanna do here. That's always what I'm trying to put forth to you and trying to get you to do is to think with intention about faith. So we're gonna start just phrase by phrase. Appropriately, we're gonna start with the phrase, in the beginning. It's so obvious in its meaning, right? In the beginning, that speaks of a fixed point in time. At least that's how we hear it. And of course, without thinking about it, we just unconsciously assume that this is the historical start of the epic story of how God creates and then interacts with the world. And certainly this in the beginning narrative was written well, in the beginning, right? <laughs> like, wasn't it written before the rest of the Bible because it's the beginning of the story? Actually, highly unlikely that it was written before the rest of the Bible. When we're locating the setting of Genesis 1, when it was written, most scholars tend to think that this was written down and made part of the liturgical part of the sacred text of the Jews, of the Israelites. It was written down in the time of exile. 
And we have talked about the time of the Babylonian exile before in some of our messages where the Israelites were forcibly removed from their homeland, taken to another place. They lost the war. So they're torn from their land. Their place of worship, the temple, has been burned down. The customs of worship, the customs of all of this that have ordered their entire lives, gone. So how do they make sense of this travesty of being brutally taken over by this foreign power and then forced to leave their homes? How do you make order out of the chaos of war? Well, they made order by looking for what order remained. The order of sunrise and sunset, of days and years and trees and fish and animals. And all of this pointed them together to an order and a goodness that even war and even captivity could not erase. So when the thread of Israel's hope as a nation seemed completely lost, God's people could look up. They could look out and they could recite the words of Genesis, their proof that God's world was created with order and intention and that it was created good. So if these words were not written down until hundreds, thousands, who knows how many years after the beginning, how is it that we can understand what they mean? So I'm going to bring forth two things for you to consider, for you to think about. First of all, the actual Hebrew that this was written in does not say literally in the beginning. Literally translated, it reads a beginning or in beginning. So the idea that we're talking about a fixed point in time in the beginning, that seems elusive here. That's simply not what these words are trying to convey. In beginning, it's perhaps maybe we could understand it if we think about it like in modern vernacular, like when beginning. When beginning, so-and-so did X. That's more kind of what this is trying to convey, convey than saying in the beginning, a fixed point in time. And second, when we think about the phrase in beginning, or even the phrase in the beginning, it can be understood as like a cultural kind of idiom. Like we say, like, in the kick the bucket, <laughs> or something like that. Something that someone else might not really understand what it meant. In the beginning, it's kind of a common turn of speech. An idiom for saying something like, a long, long time ago. And we have this, of course, <laughs> a long, long time ago in a galaxy far away, or all the fairy tales start with, a long, long time ago. That's essentially what in beginning, in the beginning was saying. So a long, long time ago, God began. God began to do what? <laughs> Second phrase, create the heavens and the earth. And immediately we know, right? We think we know this involves God creating the universe and the earth and everything in the skies and in between and the galaxies and as far as we can see and even farther, just uh, massive everything in the whole universe. And certainly, I don't disagree with that. God's fingerprints are on everything in the earth and in the skies and in the universe and the galaxies and the planets. However, <laughs> remember that when this was written, there were no globes, no telescopes, no satellites. The writers had no concept of the earth as a sphere floating in space, circling around the sun, orbiting a star. This is a general phrase. This is not a specific scientific phrase. It's not attempting to say anything definite about science or the universe, even though we understand that, yes, God created the universe and everything in it. This, that's not what this phrase is trying to say. What did they understand? What did the writers and the readers understand about the heaven and the earth then? What even are the heavens and the earth? Where are they? Well, 
what are the heavens? What's up there? <laughs> and what's the earth? What's down there? What's down beneath our feet? So essentially these words are saying a long, long time ago when God began, God made what's up there and what's down here. <laughs> That's a little bit of a different understanding than we, than we usually think in terms of this cosmic vast. And I think that the cosmic vast is appropriate. But remember, we want to know what the readers would have understood. And they would have understood that God made what's up there and God made what's down here, whatever that is. And what did God work this creative process on? The earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. And perhaps you've maybe heard this translated formless and empty, formless and void. If you've grown up in church, that's a common translation. So what, is, what does that even mean? <laughs> void? Does that mean the earth didn't exist at all and then God created it? Does that mean something existed and God shaped the earth? Does that mean, what does that even mean? Again, those are good questions, but not perhaps good questions to ask of this phrase because this passage is not trying to say scientific things. It's a celebration, a glorification of God for the incredible work that God has done in creating and shaping and bringing life from chaos. One very delightful translation I have heard of this phrase, instead of formless and void, it was translated wild and waste. That's beautiful. That's a poetic. Picture a desert, just an untamed, endless wilderness, void, empty, utterly dangerous to life. And here are the Israelites, who, as you recall, <laughs> are surrounded by the devastation of their lost land, their lost loved ones in the war, their lost hope of their nation. And they're saying wild and waste shapeless and void. This is what used to be, and this is what is now in our own lives. But God, God brought order to this formless, shapeless nothing and made the wilderness a safe place for us to live. Our God brings order out of chaos and has been doing it longer than humans can even remember. Before humans existed, God was bringing order out of chaos. So perhaps God may bring order out of this chaos and waste of the exile that we are in. And finally, we get to the last phrase, verse two. The spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God hovering, God seeing, God breathing into the void. Beautiful, holy, magnificent. And yet, here we misunderstand also. And here we misconstrue because right here in the first two verses of the Bible, the gender of God is displayed. In the first two verses of the Bible, God introduces God's self as both male and female. And that may be difficult to hear. I completely understand. If you have only ever refer heard God referred to as he or in a gender neutral sense, and perhaps that this might feel uncomfortable. You might instantly be like, no, God's not a woman. And if you're feeling that tension right now, I just invite you to sit with it for a moment as we kind of walk through this together, because I want to explain. I want to explain why I'm saying this is in the first two verses of the Bible. Here in these two verses, God is both masculine and feminine. In the first verse, we have in beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
And this, in the Hebrew, uses a singular masculine verb to refer to God. He created. That's what it says. He created. And then in the second verse, we have the phrase, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And in the Hebrew, it uses a singular feminine verb. It says, she hovered. And the subject of the verb, spirit, the Hebrew word for that spirit or wind is ruach. And we've talked about that before as well. The subject of the word is also feminine. Because in America, we don't really have like feminine and masculine words. Like perhaps if you've taken Spanish, you understand like feminine and masculine words, how they have endings like that. Um, so in Hebrew, that's similar. There's feminine words, there's masculine words. And spirit is a feminine word. And it's preceded by the feminine singular verb, she hovered. And then later in the passage, this is why this makes so much sense. So we have these first two verses where God says, he created, she hovered. And then in the next chapter, we have God creating humans. And it says, let us, God speaking, let us create humans in our likeness, in our image. So God created them, male and female. And the plural creation of humans in our image, in the image of God, that makes the most sense if it's read in light of just a few verses prior, the very introduction to God and to the world where it says God is introducing God's self as masculine and feminine. The hour of our image is clear and apparent when you tie those two together. And so we have these first two verses of our entire sacred scripture, <laughs> getting tongue-tied, the first two verses of our sacred scripture where God is presented as both masculine and feminine, male and female. And this is occurring in many other places in scripture, but for centuries, centuries and millennia, <laughs> the church has characterized every mention of God as either male or gender neutral. And I do quite often get the argument from people like, when this is discussed, that God is beyond gender. So we should only use gender neutral language when referring to God because God is beyond gender. And aside from the grammatical awkwardness that that sometimes causes, I am inclined to agree with you. Uh, God is beyond gender, right? An, an infinite divine such as God must necessarily be beyond all of our knowledge and all of our constructs. So in a sense, of course, God is beyond gender. But in another sense, God chooses to interact with and be involved in our world. And the ideas of both masculine and feminine and everything in between those two ideas must be included in God because we are created in God's image. And if we are created in God's image, then there must be something in the image of God that we are mirrored from. So for me, the point of contention does not lie in the fact that the infinite divine God is beyond gender. The point of contention for me lies in the fact that the femininity of God has been scrubbed from the books, scrubbed from church services, scrubbed from faith communities, labeled as heresy to refer to God in any way as feminine or female, all in service of the patriarchy. And the masculinity of God, God as he, has been celebrated, exalted, and enforced. And so what is the result of this? 
where God is only he and never she, even though females are also made in the image of God. If God is not she as well as he, then women's bodies become easy to abuse and women can be viewed as property, as less than, as needing a male relationship to be complete. If God is not she, then women become the weaker sex. Their thoughts and ideas are viewed as inferior, their educational opportunities are denied, and their desires are seen as petty and useless. If God is not she, as well as he, then women who have been called of God to preach the word, to stand in the gap between the evil and the good in the world, and take God to those places, those women get denied. They get told they can only teach other women. Or, you know, perhaps children. God forbid they preach the gospel when a man is present to hear. God forbid we recognize the spirit of God on a woman's life and call her pastor instead of director. I personally know plenty of women who have been told by their faith communities that they were actually sinning, living in sin, because they had a desire to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people, that they were being divisive, that they were being used as instruments of the devil. And I know that I get a little fired up <laughs> about this. And it, what I have encountered is that it's very easy, especially for men, to dismiss my words completely and just say, oh, I'm being too emotional. I'm exaggerating. Or even just to say something like, surely it's better now. That was the old days. That doesn't happen anymore. Yes, it does. It happens all the time, constantly. If you've grown up in church uh, and you are a man, I guarantee you that most of the women around you have some kind of story of spiritual abuse, um, of condemnation that they have suffered for trying to lead in the church. And when God is not she, when God is only and ever he, when God is not she, then women are not believed. And sadly, the church is one of the worst offenders in this area. And I had the incredible privilege when I was growing up to be surrounded by a lot of strong female faith leaders. Um, the church that I was raised in was founded by a woman. <laughs> like I never heard when I was growing up that I couldn't be a pastor or that I couldn't be a preacher because I was a woman. Of course, as soon as I went to Christian college and seminary, I heard that quite a bit. But obviously, I'm a little bit contrary. <laughs> so that didn't work out for them. It worked out for me. And if you like to do research and you're, you like to get this perspective, uh, a friend of mine named Joy Qualls has written a book called God Forgive Us for Being Women. And it's truly a history in the Pentecostal movement of women who have been denied leadership opportunities and, and truly spiritually abused because they were called of God to share the good news and they simply were not allowed to do that. So what I am saying is, to make this very clear, we have been fundamentally wrong when it comes to never referring to God as female. It's in Genesis. So if we're going to actually read the Bible literally, <laughs> because this is the argument I always get in with biblical literists, is that I'm actually reading it more literally 
because I'm not ignoring the fact that in the second verse of the Bible, at the beginning, at, begin, at a beginning, when God began to create, God introduces God's self as both male he created and female she hovered. And the spirit of God is female. And I, it has been fundamentally wrong of the church to ignore that. So I invite you to participate in an exercise the next time you read your Bible, perhaps the next, you know, let's say for two weeks, for two weeks, anytime you read your Bible and you see this word spirit, the spirit of God, spirit, substitute she, and then see how that feels. And then come back to me in a couple of weeks and tell me, has that changed your experience? Has that changed your understanding of the Bible? What have you gained from that? And I'm going to end by actually reading a different translation of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, a translation from, directly from the Hebrew by Will Gaffney, who is an incredible Hebrew scholar and womanist theologian. And if you don't know, womanist theology is black feminist theology, black feminist interpretation. It's so much richer, so much deeper than just regular feminist theology. And if you are at all interested in the Old Testament and seeing it in a way that you never have before, I highly, highly recommend Will Gaffney's work. And I'd be happy to provide links if you're interested. So here's her translation of Genesis 1, 1 and 2, directly from the Hebrew. In beginning, he, God, created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and shapeless and darkness covered the face of the deep. While she, the spirit of God, pulsed over the face of the waters. I hope, I hope that in pausing to study just these two small verses, that you've seen them in a way that you haven't before, that you find it meaningful to your faith. And though we usually close with a benediction, today I'm going to close actually with Will Gaffney's words about God, which are just as poetic and powerful. This is what she says, and I'm quoting. She, the spirit of God, she who is also God at the dawn of creation fluttered over the nest of her creation. At the same time that he, the more familiar expression of divinity created all, they two in one, the first articulations, the first self articulations of God, the God in and the God of our sacred scriptures. God is female and male. And when God gets around to creating creatures in the divine image, they will be female and male, just as God is." End quote. And I should add female and male and everything in between. And so now, as we go in holy defiance, <laughs> holy defiance of narrow readings of scripture, that harm our entire community, we will remember and we will proclaim the truth by which we all live. That all creatures are valuable, that all humans are created in the image of God, and we will not tolerate and we will not comply with any form of oppression that takes away the dignity of humans that was born in them from God. Amen. Until I see you again, I hope you have a good week. I hope you stay safe. And I hope 
that your faith is a meaningful part of your life this week. And we'll see you next Sunday. Bye, friends.